1: So thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us today. And um, as I said, we're going to be uh, going through this article uh, that the uh, Huffington Post uh, published um, the other day. Entitled, uh, Five Harmful Myths About Food's Effect on Heart Health. Uh, Hold on, sorry. Again, just trying to work through the technical uh, details here of getting people up as speakers. And uh, at the end of this, we'll, uh, we'll certainly do some questions and answers as well. So, um, Or as we're going along, if anyone wants to ask some questions, please uh, feel free to request uh, to speak, and I will uh, bring you up. So um, this article, uh, the title is it, Five Harmful Myths About Food's Effect on Heart Health. And it says, doctors want to clear these up because some of them are flat out wrong. Uh, So great title. And um, I really, you know, like the approach. Um, And the the first image in the article uh, and the the, uh, caption under it, I love. It says, eggs have gotten a raw deal. Uh, And yes, they have. Uh, So article starts off great. You know, heart disease is the leading cause of death. Um, Interestingly, they quote an American Heart Association report that estimated 80% of cardiovascular disease, uh, including heart disease and stroke, can be avoided when the right diet and lifestyle habits are put into place, Um, which is great advice. Um, The unfortunate thing is that the American Heart Association uh, messaging Uh, around diet and lifestyle, I believe, you know, gets this very wrong. And the diet and lifestyle, uh, particularly the the dietary advice that the American Heart Association is giving, uh, not only isn't reducing the risk, uh, but may actually be worsening it. Uh, So uh, that's a a key thing that we'll discuss as we go along. So um, myth one, a low-fat diet is best for heart health. Love it. It's a total myth. Um, But what they talk about uh, under the headline, under this sort of sub headline, um, really has a few uh, issues with it. Um, So they start off by talking about, you know, that we've kind of evolved past the 90s uh, when just putting low fat on uh, anything from frozen yogurt to cookies, um, you know, was uh, thought to be a good thing. Um and then they uh they uh have a uh, physician from uh, the University of South For- Florida uh Dr. Stephen Masley uh quoted. Um and uh basically the gist of this myth is uh according to Dr. Masley that we should be avoiding uh trans fats, um hydrogenated fats. And then he goes on to say that unsaturated fats are actually beneficial for heart health. Um, and so I completely agree with with Dr. Masley that, you know, trans fats um, and hydrogenated fats, uh, which are commonly found in over-processed foods, should be avoided. Um, we differ a little bit, uh, you know, on the unsaturated fat issue, uh, because I think what Dr. Masley was tr- was implying, and what the article uh, goes into a little bit later is uh, that saturated fats are bad for us, and I don't believe that to be true at all. Um, saturated fats, uh, which are you know natural fats that occur uh, more so in animal products than plant products, but they occur in plant products as, as well, um, have traditionally been associated, um, with, uh, the risk of heart disease. Um, but really, you know, that data is very weak. Uh, and I see, uh, you know, no real good evidence, uh, that saturated fat is associated with the development of heart disease. And in fact, there was a, uh, comprehensive review done, uh, a couple of years ago. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, I believe it was end of 2019 or early 2020, um, where they did a uh, full review and uh, did not find uh, any evidence um, that uh, saturated fat uh, was associated with heart disease. And in fact, both the American Heart Association and the U.S. dietary guidelines have removed the limits on saturated fat uh, from their uh, recommendations. They just don't publicize that. They um, have removed those uh, uh, removed those recommendations. So, um, you know, whether or not unsaturated fats can lower the risk of heart disease, I would say, is very controversial as well. And it really gets into uh, whether you're talking about monounsaturated fats versus polyunsaturated fats. And uh, without getting too deep into the science here, um, realize the difference between saturated fats, unsaturated fats, which then get broken down into mono and polyunsaturated fats, is in their chemical structure. And essentially, you know, what uh, I, I try to get people to understand about this is um, any place that a fat, the structure of the fat, uh, the chemical structure of the fat is unsaturated is a place where that fat can get um, oxidized and damaged. Um, Hydrogenated, they kind of mention it, uh, is another term for that. So the more unsaturated the fat is, the higher the risk of it becoming damaged, and those are the types of fats that ultimately contribute to us developing heart disease. Um, So polyunsaturated fats like vegetable and seed oils, I think, should— should be avoided and are a main contributor to heart disease and much of the other chronic disease that we face. Um, Monounsaturated fats like uh, occur, you know, olive oil is high in monounsaturated fats. Um, It turns out red meat um, is, uh, you know, a a fair balance between saturated and monounsaturated fats. You're not going to get polyunsaturated fats from red meat. Um, avocado nuts, they mention in the article, uh, that are more monounsaturated fats, you know, are probably not harmful for your health overall. Uh, but polyunsaturated fats clearly harmful for your health. And, uh, these primarily occur in things like vegetable and seed oils and really should be avoided at all costs. Um, myth number two. Um, is that eggs are bad for your heart? Uh, and again, I agree. Total, uh, total myth that uh, needs to be uh, dispelled. The um, they talk about. Uh, so they continue to quote uh, Dr. Masley, um, and um, he uh, references basically uh, two large, uh, studies done in the past that associated, uh, or, or found that eating one egg a day was not linked to raising the risk of heart disease. Um, and then they, uh, he goes on to cite another study, uh, that find that people, uh, uh, basically compared, uh, Japanese diets to U.S. diets, and they found that uh, people in Japan actually eat more eggs than in the U.S. and have a lower risk of coronary heart disease. Um, so again, uh, this one uh, I basically agree with. Um, they uh, The kind of final uh, part of this discussion is around um, the fact that eggs are high in cholesterol. And again, the Um, What I would put as another myth is that the cholesterol in the food that we eat um, affects our blood cholesterol level, and then um, our blood cholesterol level then affects our heart risk of heart disease. So Dr. Masley uh, properly points out that that is not necessarily true. Um, The amount of cholesterol that we eat only has a minimal effect on our blood cholesterol levels. I agree with that. Uh, But Dr. Masley then goes on to blame saturated fat as the big culprit in raising our blood cholesterol levels. And he says this includes things like sausage, bacon, fatty meats, fried foods, butter and dairy products, but not eggs. Um, And that's a very interesting distinction that he makes uh, because eggs do contain saturated fat, uh, probably as much as butter and dairy products. Um, And I would divide that list very differently. Uh, Butter, dairy products, eggs, not harmful to our health. Um, Unprocessed meats, not harmful to our health, despite them containing saturated fat. Uh, So I see no reason to be avoiding fatty meats, uh, as Dr. Masley uh, and this article recommends. Um, I do believe that we should be uh, avoiding... Uh, fried foods um, because fried foods are primarily fried in uh highly in vegetable and seed oils which are high in saturated fat um so that takes us through uh myth one and myth two um and then we get to myth three um, and myth three uh is uh um You know, kind of where I guess I come into the article. And myth three is that red meat should be avoided at all costs. And again, this is definitely a myth. And uh, I uh, certainly agree uh, that this is a myth. So, um, this is the section, like I said, that I get quoted in. And they start off the section by saying that in moderation, red meat itself may not be as bad for your health as the foods you're eating alongside it. Um, And they cite a number of studies that have linked the consumption of red meat to increased risk of heart disease, Um, but they point out that those numbers uh, are are not as drastic as people are led to believe. Um, They point to a 2020 study um, from the Northwestern uh, University and Cornell Universities uh, that said, that eating two, three and a half ounce servings of red meat per week uh, was linked to a three percent to seven percent higher risk of cardiovascular disease and a three percent higher risk of death. Now, the important thing to understand about this study that they are talking about is that it is uh, what we call an epidemiologic study, um, and basically, you know, all of the studies of this sort, what they do is they ask people. What they eat in some fashion. The better studies of this kind have people actually track it, you know, sort of in real time. Um, Most of these studies are done using what are called uh, food frequency questionnaires, where you ask a person to uh, guesstimate um, over the past, you know, couple of months typically, three, six, sometimes they say over the past year, how often have you eaten red meat uh, will be a question. And you can all probably think back uh, that if I asked you, uh, you know, to estimate what you ate over the past six months, you would probably have a pretty difficult time doing it, Uh, except for uh, the the, uh, known carnivores that I see out in the audience uh, with me, um, who it's pretty easy for me to tell you what I eat uh, because it's pretty much the same. Um, it's somewhere around, um, you know, 12 to 15 pounds of red meat a week, um, with very little else. Uh, so for me, it's easy for most people though, really, you know, being accurate with what they ate, um, is, uh, difficult. Um, the, um, uh, they then go on to cite a uh, the scientific report published in two thousand and nineteen and and this is that annals of internal uh, medicine article uh, that they're referring to uh, that I mentioned or actually I'm sorry, this is a different one that they're referring to but um they basically uh, looked at um research from seven different countries uh, and uh, red meat consumption um there were sixty one uh, studies um and um, uh, 73 articles, they say, and basically, ultimately, they found the evidence lacking uh, to try and associate red meat um, with uh, heart disease. Uh, So, you know, again, the evidence that has been put forward to uh, associate uh, red meat and um, heart disease or really any uh, negative health outcomes have been, um, uh, have been weak studies that have shown uh, weak evidence. Now, they then go on to quote me, uh, and uh, it's very interesting, I guess, we'll say how they quoted me. So uh, they you know say, according to Dr. Philip Ovedia, cardiac surgeon, author of Stay Off My Operating Table, the real problem is pairing your red meat with a lot of sauces, fries, and soda. Um, it's these things he said that negatively impact heart health. Not so much the meat, and you know that's definitely uh, a quote I stand by and agree with. Um, but interestingly, they have a picture above it, and the uh, the the uh, you know the caption under the picture says, "What's potentially worse for your heart than red meat? The butter you put on it and the fries you eat alongside it." Um, and this could not be further from the truth. Uh, Again, there is nothing wrong with putting butter on your red meat. It is not contributing to heart disease in any way. Um, The fries, again, if they're fried in vegetable and seed oil, they're definitely contributing. The soda, definitely contributing. Uh, But putting butter on your red meat is not harmful to your health. They also go on, and they put this as a quote, but I can assure you this is not something that I... Uh, said to the uh, reporter um, that sauces and fries uh, can both be high in sodium, which can increase blood pressure. Um, again, the link between dietary sodium and blood pressure um, is uh, very questionable, um, and um, I don't necessarily I don't tell people that you need to avoid salt in your diet. Um, I think if that salt is coming in processed food, it could be a problem. Um, But I would not attribute, uh, you know, these things to, um, uh, you know, the sodium in the sauces. It's not really the problem. Um, It's, you know, what else is going in that sauce uh, that can be the problem. And with French fries, like I said, the main problem is that they're fried in vegetable and seed oils. So she then goes on to say, the author of the article then goes on to say, additionally, fries are high in trans fat, which are linked to increased risk of heart disease. I do agree with that. Um, she says, as for soft drinks, regular soda, which is high in sugar, and diet soda with artificial sweeteners are both linked to increase in the risk of heart disease. And again, I, I agree with that as well. Um, they then wrap up this section by saying, when you do eat red meat, remember to avoid high fat cuts, um, which again, is not something I would agree with. And they wrap up by saying, as previously explained, fatty meats are high in saturated fats, something that does negatively impact heart health. Again, a statement that I absolutely do not agree with. And, um, you know, not something I would have said uh, when I was being uh, interviewed for this article. So I'm going to take a pause there. Um Jack has finally uh joined me up on stage here. So welcome Jack. Hey Phil.
0: I I forgot when we started that if I want to talk I have to be on my phone. <laughs>
1: yes, indeed. The, the, the uh technical challenges of Twitter Spaces. Hey, um I'd like you to back
0: up and um unpack this this myth around salt um that has been good lord i mean I, I can think probably at least 30 years we've been living with this oh my god don't salt your food salt's bad for you salt's going to give you a heart attack blah 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 where did that get started and and why is it how did it get such traction and what do you say to folks
1: yeah so you know when we look at the studies around salt, again, um it really you know, a lot of it is epidemiologic data. Um, some of it does come from animal studies, uh, but there are a couple of things to unpack there. Um, you know, in terms of the epidemiologic data around salt, uh, so again, going to these you know food questionnaires and asking people what they eat and then looking at their health outcomes. The problem is that the majority of the salt that Americans get in their diet and, and, you know, these days we could probably extend, you know, uh, when we say the American diet, it uh, largely extends to the Western world in general. So we could say the Western diet. Um, The majority of the salt in people's diet usually comes in processed foods. Uh, So, you know, if your food has a label on it, and you're reading those labels, uh, you know. You you can see uh, where you know a lot of any of these processed foods, um, you know, they tend to be high in salt, uh, and therefore, when people consume a lot of salt in the form of processed food, um, it certainly can contribute to high blood pressure uh, and poor metabolic health in general because processed food containing salt and sugar, and vegetable and seed oils, and highly processed carbohydrates. Um, You know, when you put that all together, it's certainly going to cause uh, issues. Um, But it's not the salt uh, that I would blame in that scenario. And it's interesting, um, when you look at scientific studies um, on people who come to the hospital with high blood pressure, with very high blood pressure, you know what we call a hypertensive crisis. You know your blood pressure is uh, 180 or 190 or even 200, and we're really concerned that you know you're you're going to have a stroke or uh, some other uh, you know negative outcome related to that high blood pressure. Um, one of the treatments is to give you um, what's called hypertonic saline solution, which is um, High salt solution, and it actually brings blood pressure down um,
0: okay so, I, I, I just I want us all to pause and, yeah. and
1: absorb
0: that so on the one hand, the official uh, uh, nutrition spokespersons of the of the government have told us that salt is bad for us it's going to increase lead to a risk of heart disease. Don't salt your food low-salt everything, and yet when you have somebody who comes into the hospital in an emergency situation with with dangerously high uh, blood pressure, one of the ways that it is alleviated this acute condition
1: is with salt. Yes one of the one of the many inconsistencies that we tend to kind of sweep under the rug in medicine um that that inconvenient fact um there is a small um percentage of people with high blood pressure that have what we call salt sensitive hypertension um and these are people that usually have issues with their kidneys as well uh, so that um you know one of the effects uh, of uh, one of the things uh that happens uh if you raise the amount of sodium, okay, realize that sodium is one of the components of salt, but sodium and salt are not quite the same thing um but if you put extra sodium into your body into your bloodstream specifically, um the body uh water. Flows with sodium, um, you know. And again, without getting too technical, you know, if we all remember back to our chemistry days and concentration gradients, and basically, water is going to go where there's more uh, solvents. You know, if you have two solutions next to each other and you make one very salty, the water will flow over to the to the higher, uh, you know, the the uh, solution that has the higher concentration of dissolved. Um, Uh, ions in it, um, of which sodium is is a major one in the body. So if your sodium level goes up, um, you're going to then, you know, bring more fluid basically into your blood vessels, and that's going to cause your blood pressure to go up. Uh, and, And, you know, you can do that on a chronic basis if your kidneys aren't working properly. If your kidneys are working properly, your body's going to get rid of the extra sodium. Uh, So there is a small subset of the population that has what's called salt-sensitive hypertension. And those people, um, dietary salt can worsen their blood pressure. But it's it's a very small effect, even in those people. Uh, So really, there is no good evidence. You know, this is, I've tried to kind of go back through the historical literature and figure out how we really got to this point of thinking that, you know, eating salt is is uh, causing high blood pressure. And it's really hard to reconstruct how that argument even came to be in the first place. Um, so bottom line, um, if you're consuming salt, and I always tell people, you know, differentiate good quality salt from uh, the processed salt that's, off, you know, most of the table salt that's going to be around you in a restaurant or, you know, that you might buy in the supermarket is actually a processed food. Uh, They've taken that natural salt from the ground. They've oftentimes stripped out a lot of the minerals uh, from it. Uh, And then they've sometimes added back in things. You know, you'll see iodine added to salt uh, for various reasons, other things added back in. Um, but it's really far away from the salt as it comes out of the ground. If you get or out of the, uh, you know, uh, the seas, if you get a good quality sea salt, um, that's a lot different than, you know, the, the shaker of salt that's going to be on your restaurant table and a lot different than the salt that's getting put into your processed foods. Uh, so no real evidence that high quality salt is bad for your health and uh you know i i i really do think it it is probably good for your health um there's a there's um many scientific researchers and clinicians out there who uh make the argument that we don't consume enough salt enough good quality salt uh J, james uh, d de, de, de uh i always have oh. trouble with his name uh de uh <laughs> Has written a book called The Salt Fix. Just look up the uh, title of the book, The Salt Fix. And uh, what he uh, professes is that we should actually be eating more sodium, more high quality salt uh, and uh, for our health. And many of us are actually salt deficient because similar to the low fat craze and what it did is it got everyone eating low fat. You know, this low sodium craze has gotten everyone eating less uh, sodium. All right. Well, I, I I appreciate that.
0: You want to move on to myth four?
1: Let's move on to myth four. And again, I agree with the myth as it's in the headline uh, that it's a myth that if you're on medication for your heart health, it means you can eat whatever you want. Um, and uh, we kind of circle back to uh, Dr. Masley here, and he uh, talks about you know that people have the misconception that you know, if they are on cholesterol-lowering medication, for instance, uh, that, uh, you know, they can pretty much eat whatever they want because the medication is going to kind of be sucking the cholesterol out or blocking it. Um, And again, I I would agree with that statement, you know. um, The, um, you know, they uh, talk about a, a study here Um, where uh, they looked at 69,000 people that were taking statins um, for what's called primary prevention of heart disease, which means preventing heart disease before it happens. Um, And they, they correctly point out that in that study, they did not find statins to be associated with a lower risk of heart disease related death. Um, And they say a major reason for this is because statins do not impact weight, and scientific studies show that a nutrient-poor diet can cause obesity, which is a major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So my problem with this section of the article, um, and really, you know, with the conclusions of this scientific study, is that they were trying to blame the fact that statins don't have any benefit to lowering the risk of heart disease. Uh, related death, which is what they are primarily supposed to be doing, and they're trying to blame it on the fact that people are still eating a crappy diet with the statins. Um, And I would just point to the fact that it probably shows that the statins don't work to start with. Um, And especially if you're eating a crappy diet, it's not going to overcome the effects of eating that crappy diet. So this one, you know, I sort of give a, a, a half score to I, I mostly agree with, you know, what they're saying in this section. I definitely agree with the myth. Um, I just disagree with sort of their thinking that, um, you know, you need to take the medication and improve your diet, when the real answer is just improve your diet and you won't need the medications. And and a lot of these cases, the medications aren't doing what we're told they're supposed to do. And that's not because of what people are doing with the medication that's really because these medications are ineffective and we yeah. have uh, a lot of data to support that
0: i think it's worth noting that there is a an assumption uh a, a set of axioms that that are are foundational to these types of articles that we see in places like Huffington Post and mm-hmm. that that foundational assumption is the drugs that are being prescribed work. they do what they're what we're told that they do, and if you're not getting the appropriate results, it's not the drug's fault
1: right yeah, no, I think that is uh, very much a uh, a a default way of thinking um that if medications and honestly i'll I'll extend this beyond medications um you know uh interventions um if they're not getting the proper results um usually uh the default is to blame the uh the the user shall we say so this same argument we see um around the 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 food guidelines you know the food pyramid the us dietary guidelines you know it's often said that the reason that they haven't had the effects that they were designed for lowering obesity lowering heart disease um, is because people don't follow them correctly. Um, Yet, you know, again, the macro level data uh, shows us that people do follow the U.S. dietary guidelines. You know, if you look over the past 40 years, um, the, you know, consumption uh, in the United States has been in line with the U.S. dietary guidelines. The amount of fat that we eat, especially the amount of saturated fat that we eat, Has gone down. The amount of red meat that we eat has gone down. Um, The amount of whole grains that we eat and the amount of carbohydrates that we eat in general has gone up. Um, And the amount of polyunsaturated fats, uh, you know, which we talked about before, has gone up. And during that time, our health has gotten worse. Uh, So you know, you always get the argument, uh, you know, from the people who put forth these guidelines. That just people aren't following the guidelines, um, and that's why they don't work. And again, you see that uh, from pharmaceutical, uh, you know, companies as well uh, on a frequent basis. You know, the reason that the medications aren't doing what they, you know, what we designed them to do, and what the trials showed them to do, is because people must be doing something wrong. Uh, and in reality, it's usually because the trials were misleading um, in the, you know, oftentimes in the magnitude of the effect of the medication. Uh, yeah, so, um, yeah it, it's something we really need to continue to discuss and point out.
0: That would be um, a fascinating spaces for us to do to talk about how these trials uh, end up being misleading because of the magnitude of the effect. Yeah, and, that seems and you to be know, fair. I, I don't want to go down that that particular rabbit hole right now. But we we ought to ask the audience. That sound like something you guys would like to explore?
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, throw that in the chat, um, if uh, that's something you would uh, like to explore sometime. And let's let's move on to myth number five, the final myth in this article, and uh, the the myth is at some point changing your diet isn't enough to reverse damage already done to your heart. Um, Again, I agree that this is a myth, uh, and, you know, they quote me in this uh, section as well. Um, And basically, you know, what I say and uh, what they said in the article is that it's never too late to start looking after your heart. Um, If you've been diagnosed with heart disease— um, if you already have suffered a heart attack or or had heart surgery um, or a stent placed or something like that, um, you can still improve your situation by changing your diet and lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, th- this one uh, I-, I think I got quoted accurately on and I really don't have an issue with. Um, you know, I talk about how I've had patients who I've performed heart surgery on. And they then greatly improve their health afterwards by paying attention to their diet and lifestyle. And uh, they conclude by saying what's empowering about heart health is that so much of it is in our control. And again, I would agree with that. Uh, No one is destined to experience a heart attack, regardless of your family history or even your own history. Um, All you have to do is take these words of wisdom to heart. Uh, So, you know, I agree. It's never too late to start this. Um, I always say the best, you know, the best time to start paying attention to your metabolic health was yesterday. Uh, but the second best time is today and, uh, start paying attention to your metabolic health, start changing your diet and lifestyle. Um, listen to uh, maybe a few of these, uh, recommendations from this article, uh, but certainly not all of them. And, uh, you know, I just thought this was a good opportunity to kind of have a discussion around, um, you know, one of the other problems that I see uh, in medicine today uh, or in society today. Um, you know that we sometimes recognize that these things aren't true, but we don't quite recognize the real reasons that they're not true.
0: Very good. Well, let's give it a grade
1: uh,
0: as as a. As a a source of uh, reliable, actionable, and uh, effective information, this article from the Huffington Post rates on a scale of uh, A to F, what would you give it?
1: Uh, I think I'm going to give it a, uh, I'm going to say a C plus. Um, And what I'm going to say about the article is this is one of the situations where it may be beneficial that people only read the headlines. Um, because if you you read the myths and, um, you know, like I said, all five myths that they lay out are, in fact, myth. Um, and, uh, you know, if you don't go into some of the details under those myths, you're probably going to be all right. Uh, so. I'm, I Like I said, I'm going to go with a, a, a C plus on the uh, article here.
0: All right. Well, I guess it's time to open it up for questions, comments, um, so
1: I'm so calling anyone, producer now. <laughs> yep, you're a co-host now. Very good. Right. So, uh, yeah, certainly um, love to hear anyone's uh, thoughts. Um, um, we have uh, Wolf already up on stage. I don't know if uh, he's been uh, – if Wolf wants to uh, make any comments. He always has insightful things to say. All right. Um. I'm actually out in a public place right now, but really quickly, Doctor Ovedia, I would like to know whether um, you have any opinion about, for example, my my wife says I've been dating Hebrew um, National hot dogs lately, the quarter pounders, and you know, does that count as you know something you would discourage people from eating as a form of processed meat or can that actually be integrated into a, a carnivore adjacent
2: diet, which is what I say I'm doing right now?
1: Yeah. So I would, um, you know, say that, uh, hot dogs are, uh, probably, uh, you know, and again, um, I think you want to be careful, uh, with hot dogs in general. Uh, and you really want to be looking at, you know, sort of the, you want to be looking at the ingredient list. <laughs> Um, You know, I think uh, all beef hot dogs, which I believe Hebrew national are, um, are probably going to be better than hot dogs that are made with mixed uh, meats. Um, You know, oftentimes incorporating uh, pork uh, and sometimes even things like chicken and turkey Um, beef uh, in general, um, even if it's lower quality beef. Um, which, you know, probably ends up getting used in hot dogs, if we're going to be honest. Um, Lower quality beef probably isn't as much of a concern as lower quality uh, non ruminant animals. So things like pork and chicken. And then you want to be careful. You know, what else are they putting in those hot dogs? You know, what fillers are they putting in? Um, How much salt, uh, you know, which, again, is going to be processed uh, food salt, essentially, you know, are they putting in there? Um, but a good, high-quality hot dog, uh, and I would probably put Hebrew National on that list. Um, I don't have much problem with. Um, should it be the mainstay of your diet? You know, uh, <laughs> that's something you might want. to well, I'm often having those for lunch, but my 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 dinner is still a good size ribeye. <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I I, uh, I I don't doubt that, and so. I don't have a problem. I wouldn't have a problem, you know, having that as part of your diet. Uh, like I said, you probably don't want to make it a mainstay. Although I think I saw something and uh I see Nick in the audience, he might be able to comment on this. I think I think Dave Feldman is currently doing uh one of his uh uh n equals one experiments around uh, hot dogs. Uh I think I saw something uh uh to that effect. But um yeah. Like I said, good, high-quality hot dogs, I I think, are fine to consume. I wouldn't consider them a processed food, um, but you do want to be careful maybe about some of the lower-quality hot dogs that are going to be sort of more of a processed food.
3: Thank you so much for
1: your
4: expertise. We've all uh,
0: Owen Gregorian. It looks like uh, is requesting us to to speak.
4: Yeah, thanks. Uh, my question is: Why are there so many myths about this? Like, it seems like you know these uh, from everything you're saying. The science is kind of pointing in the direction that a lot of these things that we've held to be true are not true. Is it just a matter of there's been more recent science and the mainstream hasn't caught up to to communicating that, or is there some other agenda going on, that they're trying not to let you know what the truth is? What, what do you think is going on? Yeah, so
1: I certainly uh, I, I think there are a number of things going on um, here. You know, I think that uh, people uh, in institutions, uh, you know, so the reality is, is when you dig into the scientific literature, um, you can probably find a study or sometimes even multiple studies that are going to support uh, whatever conclusion you want to make. Um, And oftentimes I find that today we start off by deciding um, what conclusion we want to make and then go finding the evidence to support that as opposed to, you know, what is the true scientific method of making a hypothesis, uh, you know, sort of designing the experiment to test that hypothesis, and then going with, you know, what the experiment shows. Uh, and then, you know, being able to repeat that experiment and get consistent results. Um, this is what the scientific method was really based on. And we we don't do a good job of adhering to those principles these days. I think people largely, um, you know, bring their conclusions and then they, you know, will find a study to support it. And they're going to ignore the quality of those studies, uh, you know, because as long as it supports their conclusion and this even extends to, you know, um, within scientific studies that get published today, it is not unusual to find that the conclusions, um, you know, that are sort of put into the abstract or, or sort of put into the headline, um, aren't even really supported by the data that's within that study um, and, and we, we you know we've seen many examples of this, uh, and it seems to be be more of a problem. Um we then have a secondary problem today, or maybe this is now a, a tertiary problem that you know the mainstream press will report on a scientific study, and oftentimes they'll kind of uh, misquote the conclusion, or, you know, they'll just misrepresent the conclusion of the studies, again, to kind of support, um, you know, their preconceived uh, notions. Uh, I think we do see agendas, you know, there's certainly institutional uh, bias, institutional capture, um, you know, the, uh, and you can see this from, you know, governmental level, uh, to, uh, the private industries, obviously, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you're going to want to promote your pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, that, that's your business. That's what you're supposed to be doing in business. If you're the food industry, um, you want to promote your foods. Uh, again, I don't necessarily, um, blame them for that. Uh, you just have to realize, um, you know, where your information is coming from, And what motivations uh, may be behind uh, the sources of, you know, the information that's being put out there. Um, I think we all have to be a lot more. uh, We have to be a lot more careful and we have to be a lot more thoughtful about the way uh, that we're evaluating the information that's being presented to us. And you have to really say, where is this information coming from? What are the motivations? What are the biases of, um, you know, the sources of that information? (laughs) Sounds like a
0: good time to uh, to to, uh, uh, rep our friend uh, Michael Gameron's sense making uh, course. How do you make sense of of all the the nuttiness out there?
4: Yeah, definitely. Did that answer your question, Owen? Yes, thanks. It was great. I mean, if I I had one other question, which is just you know, I know there's hey jumping go ahead um, you know a a, a a terrible percentage of people that are obese right now and want to lose weight, and it seems like there's you know not much success in reducing that. Do you have any general advice as to like why why is it so hard to get obesity down in this country, and and for anyone who's looking to do that, what what's the secret?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the reason that it's so hard to get obesity down uh, in this country is um, we are, uh, our environment um, is uh, obesogenic. Uh, And so the food, the majority of the food that is put in front of us um, promotes obesity. Uh, The information that we have as to how to avoid or prevent obesity is, you know, outdated, uh, lousy information. You know, it's, it's still largely focused on, you know, the calorie in calorie out model, um, which just is not a useful framework for, um, battling obesity. Uh, and I say this as someone who, you know, battled with obesity my entire life, uh, up until, you know, about seven years ago when I started consuming different information and therefore consuming different food, and was finally able to, you know, overcome uh, my obesity. And, and uh, you know, I've been able to maintain uh, weight loss now for, uh, you know, the last uh, five plus years. Um, my real uh, message to uh, anyone, you know, uh, that is struggling with obesity is, understand that obesity is a symptom of poor metabolic health. And you really have to focus on addressing the poor metabolic health if you're going to make a meaningful impact uh, against your obesity. Um, And, you know, when you when you look at it in that framework, it really leads you to different, uh, you know, different conclusions. You get away from calories in, calories out, and you start evaluating the quality of the food that you were eating. Um, And so when you eat high quality food, when you eat whole real food, when you avoid processed food, um, you are going to uh, naturally become less hungry. Uh, You're giving your body the nutrients that it wants. You're going to get less hungry and it then becomes easier uh, to eat less and to, you know, overcome your obesity, to lose weight and overcome your obesity. Uh, but if you just start with, I want to eat less to overcome obesity, uh, that becomes very difficult. And, and study after study has shown that that just does not work uh, in a sustainable manner. We now have a lot of controversy, uh, you know, uh, the last couple of weeks, especially over medications for obesity. And again, I point to the fact that, you know, we, we've we had many medic- many attempts at medical Medication therapy for uh, obesity—none of them have worked uh, in a sustainable manner up until this point. Um, The newer drugs that are all the rage to talk um, about—I don't believe—are any different. You know, we already have the studies showing that the weight loss that is achieved with those medications is not sustainable unless you make the dietary and lifestyle changes in conjunction with the medication. Uh, So, you know, these medications may be a useful tool to help kind of people uh, get started and make the diet and lifestyle changes. But if you don't make the diet and lifestyle changes, the you know, we already have the data showing that once you go off these medications, you're going to gain back the weight. Uh, So I don't think they're a good sort of primary tool for weight loss. They might be a good adjunct in certain situations uh while you're making the dietary and lifestyle changes. all right
0: we've got nick norwitz who we've uh we actually had on the show at one point uh has requested uh that to speak so nick you ought to be uh well as soon as you're connected here
2: hi can you hear me there you go yes indeed that's no, good to hear uh your guys voices i'm just jumping on while i'm having some dinner um Quickly, I just, I want to respectfully, I think this is a very, very interesting topic, the um, new GLP-1 receptor agonists. Um, And I want to, like, respect, try to, like, add a little bit of at least my opinion in terms of, like, the nuance around these data and how these drugs are different and the pros and the cons. Generally, just to kind of set up the preface, I'm more with you, I'm more skeptical of them. That said, real quick, like-
0: real quickly, uh, Nick. It would be worthwhile to to our listeners who don't know you uh, to just point out that you've got a. You're currently, uh, you know what? You do your bio. I'm better. You're better at it than I am. You. My point is, when Nick Norwitz is talking about this stuff, he's not just some guy talking out his butt he knows what he's talking about.
1: I'll I'll give the real the real short bio for Nick. He's a very smart guy, PhD, uh working on his MD and uh yes, he's not just some guy talking out his butt. So, yeah. No, right. <laughs> with that, go on Nick. I
2: appreciate that. Um yeah, I think I've done a few threads on this. If you look at the data, I think we have to give them credit where they stand. There are multi-year randomized placebo-controlled trials. Yes, as you mentioned, they're they're generally coupled with lifestyle intervention, but it's still a placebo controlled trial. So it's lifestyle intervention plus the medication or placebo um, plus lifestyle. Um, so in, in that sense, like you have an appropriate control group and it still shows, you know, after two years, you have usually weight loss of about 15 to 18%, depending on what paper you're looking at. The one that just came out, that's the most controversial one recently, the Steph Teens trial in uh, the New England Journal was, I think, like 16% weight loss in kids, with improvements in cardiovascular risk factors, metabolic health markers. And there was a really cute table where they were actually, I shouldn't say cute, I don't mean to be um, demeaning the data, but where they did um, psychology assessments of the kids and showed how it improved their self-confidence, X, Y, and Z. So I think what needs to be given is credit where they're due, that the drugs work, the data are strong. See, where I start to have issue is we need, I agree with you, like you need to reconstruct the food environment, this obesogenic food environment, and change social norms to actually get at the root of the problem. And even if 15% body weight is impressive, there's a broad population problem if we get into the tendency of, oh, you turned 12 and you have obesity, now we need you on a medication. How does that change? our relationship with food as individuals and more broadly as a society. It allows for the further slippage and normalization of really terrible food norms. And why I think that's such an important thing to kind of reflect upon is because if you think about the individual level, the individual doctor treating a patient or the individual parent, like if I was a kid, if I was a parent of a kid with obesity, I wasn't able to help them lose weight with lifestyle alone. I'd be advocating everything. I had for that kid. Like, I'd go to the doctor and say, yeah, I want my kid on Ozempic because it's going to improve their health. And so if every doctor is looking out for every patient, and every parent's looking out for every kid, then the incentive structure is set up such that if this is available, it's going to be opportunities that are taken. You have to understand that at a clinical level. I know you do as a doctor. But then the question becomes, what is the broader impact on society, social norms, and how does it affect our motivation to actually change the food environment? And I think that's like a really difficult discussion that we need to have, because those things kind of necessarily do butt heads. Um, So the thing that scares me about these drugs, just to kind of sum up, is, is how they could more broadly impact social norms, not necessarily challenging the data upon which the approvals are based, because I don't think we'd actually make any ground there, because the data are pretty strong in and of themselves. Anyway, that's my piece.
1: No, I w- and, and I would agree with that. You know, my my concern becomes, you know, so when you're looking at using this uh, in children, for instance, and, and really even in adults, this applies. You know what what becomes your endpoint? point? Uh, because, again, we also have that data showing that when you stop the drugs, uh, there tends to be, you know, significant uh, weight regain. Um, and so, you know, if you're talking about putting teenagers on this uh you know are, are we gonna keep them on it for life obviously i would say that's probably a bad idea um although honestly we don't have data on long term use of these medications really um beyond a year um i think our lar- are the longest largest studies or or maybe there's some two year data now but still you know pretty short term uh so i agree with you you know and, and this maybe is the same way of of uh saying what you're saying you know what are the Long-term implications, what are those, you know, societal implications, you know, what is the mindset of these patients uh, when they, you know, when we stop these medications, you know, what happens then? Uh,
2: That really becomes my concern. We've got... uh... I don't think there's... Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. I don't think there's intense... The incentive structure isn't set up to get people off these medications. The incentive structure is set up to continually be innovating in pharma. And there's already basic science papers on what's beyond the GLP1 agonist, like the GLP1 combination, GDP15 agonist, stuff like that. Um, so the idea, I think, is to just make more and more potent drugs and have people be dependent on them because you have a fatalistic perception that in this obesogenic environment, People with a predisposition just will be obese and they're going to need medication. That's kind of the narrative. So I don't think the idea is to get people off of drugs, which is, I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. One of the problems, you're not addressing the root cause. And there's a final note, and this is just a totally random fun fact. Do you know where the medications come from, the GLP-1 agonists? Where they're derived from in nature? Um, that I do not know of it. No just a fun fact they're yep. derived from gila monster venom <laughs> 1995 dr drucker i think it actually was at mgh was studying how the gila monster venom really screws up the metabolism of its prey so i think it was um 1995 he started doing the extractions and then the drugs were approved for diabetes in the early 2000s that's just the fun aside of the topic but
1: that, <laughs> that that may be better than the uh, medication that I use on a daily basis. That that's derived from fish sperm, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, I just know that I want. I, I I'm desperately resisting the urge to hear more about that. But we've got one more speakers requested uh, to speak. Uh, help me out here, Daba Danny?
3: Yes. Yes. Can you hear me?
0: Yes. You sure can. You can.
3: Okay, I just had a question. Um, I have a family history of heart disease. My father went through a bypass um just a few years ago um he He was diabetic and all um so um what happened with me was that a few years ago they diagnosed they did not diagnose me with diabetes, but they said I had prediabetes um, so i went I went on intermittent fasting. I cut out all kinds of sugar. I ate once a day and I made myself this big bowl of sort of greens and microgreens and fermented food like kimchi and apples and beans and some fish, some beef kebab sometimes, you know, one protein every time. No sugar, no bread. And I lost like 40 pounds. And my A1C went down from uh, from a six to a five and uh, everything was good. But then my cholesterol stayed up last couple of years, my cholesterol levels are coming really high, and I don't know what else to do. The doctors say that because my diet is so good, and I've lost so much weight and everything, so I need to go on statins. That's the best thing that they can do for me.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, no, uh, I'm just gonna, I guess, say, uh, not an easy uh, answer, uh, not a quick discussion to have. Um, And, uh, you know, this isn't a forum really where I'm going to be giving medical advice. Um, But my general, you know, uh, I'm going to point you to some resources to start with. And, um, you know, what I'll say is that it's not clear that having an elevated cholesterol level, um, and I'm assuming you're talking about either total cholesterol or LDL cholesterol, but it's not clear that having an elevated cholesterol level in the context of good metabolic health, being insulin sensitive, which it sounds like, you know, you've made uh, great strides to improve uh, those uh, measures, uh, that there is uh, negative health outcomes associated with that. So to be clear and say that again, it's not clear that having an elevated cholesterol level in the context of insulin sensitivity and good metabolic health Uh, that there are negative health consequences associated with that. And therefore, you know, it's not clear that lowering your cholesterol level with medications in that situation uh, is going to be of any benefit. Um, It's a very complex topic to uh, get into. Um, I I would say the best place to start with that uh, discussion is uh, there's a website called Cholesterol Code, uh .com i believe it is it might be .org uh but david mm-hmm. feldman uh who many in the audience uh know uh you know uh has theorized extensively on this written extensively on it um i would also point to uh resources like dr Asim mahaltra uh he has a book uh called a and free life that goes into a lot of this um it's a very complex topic and my number one piece of advice for people in this situation is find a doctor who understands this topic well uh, and can really have the nuanced discussion with you. Uh, There are lots of, you know, typical uh, kind of high-level advice I give people. What happened there?
0: Bill, we lost you.
1: Cholesterol. Oh, sorry. He's back. You want to be doing a deep assessment of your metabolic health uh, you want to be assessing your uh, cholesterol, uh, you know, particle sizes, doing some advanced testing, uh, and uh, really uh, be working uh, with uh, a practitioner who understands this topic well and can help you work through it.
3: Will will exercise help?
1: Um exercise, uh, in my experience can help raise your HDL cholesterol. It typically isn't going to do much to lower your LDL or your total cholesterol. So, um, with that being said, uh, I actually have to hop off, uh, for, uh, to see a patient. Uh, so, uh, I am going to thank everyone for, uh, joining us in this, uh, space. Thank you. I think this is a good discussion. Uh, be on the lookout. Uh, Jack and I are, uh, are, uh, getting in the habit of doing more spaces, uh, and, uh, we'll be doing more. So, uh, keep an eye on our feeds and, uh, look forward to talking with and interacting with everyone, uh, more in the future. Thank you, everyone.